0: If you have a Bible, we're going to be opening um, the scriptures today to Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to be going through verses 5 to 18. Um, Leonard was, I knew Leonard was going to be out of town this weekend. In fact, we coordinated some things so I could be here. um, Because I was supposed to preach at another church. And then um, I always love being able to preach here. um, And so we ended up working that out. But um, he said... You can preach on anything except the next passage in Second Samuel because I've already done half the work on it, and I was like, "That's fine." So last, last because last week, if you recall, we were doing a, a sermon series that kind of fit with the uh, the filling out of VBS, and we had families coming in. You know, all Scripture is God breathed and profitable for us to be built up in the faith, right? It's it's it instructs, it rebukes, and that sort of thing, but. The passage about Absalom and that sort of thing isn't necessarily kind of the thing you want to do when you got people coming in from VBS the first time because it's a little bit of a jarring text. And, um, uh, you know, just as a preview, it really kind of shows the the wickedness of of mankind and what happens to that, that. We we should say about all of us what happens with temptation, what happens with the evil of sin, what happens with the consequences of sin. And so Leonard will be getting back to that. But I thought that I would go through a passage that kind of talks about who uh, what we have as far as in Christ what he has provided for us to be able to um, uh, not only uh, to, to, to think about um, temptation, but our relationship to Christ in light of that. And so if you would stand, we're going to be reading Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. For it was not given to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you were mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom... And by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of his of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, "I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise." And again. Please be seated. Okay, so what I'm going to try and get you guys to see um, by the end of this sermon today is that you have you have you have God on high in Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God, and who was fully man. God who became fully man and understands everything that it is to be tempted, so that when you're tempted, you have somebody who completely understands that. Now, I've just kind of given you a a summary of that, um, but I need to kind of get there because some of you are like, yeah, I get that. But what I want you guys to really kind of be overawed by at the end is like to think, wow, this is pretty amazing to think that Christ understands my temptations and um, that I have... This power, I have this power at my side, not that i 'm just kind of working these things up, but I understand what it is um, to know the power of Christ as i 'm working through these things. I think that um, one of the one of the most difficult things that I had to get into my head, uh, even as I had been studying the scriptures for a long time, was this notion of being united to Christ because um, there's a tendency. Uh, when, you're first, when you first kind of like start to get a handle on the gospel to think of salvation by faith, that you're really, what you're trying to do is you're thinking that I have faith in Christ, Christ saves me, and then that's kind of like the end of the gospel right there, that, that um, because I have faith in Christ, uh, Christ has paid the, the penalty for my sins, and therefore um, everything's good from then on. What that abbreviates, though, is that it leaves you with the sense that salvation is all about um, this declaration of your innocence before god which is true it's it's really important to know that you stand before god justified that he will eventually vindicate you so that when you stand before god's judgment you can say i'm in christ but what that leaves you if you don't if you don't really grasp the entirety of what it means to have been united by christ and to even see that the faith that you have was actually purchased by god's power himself that you were in fact enslaved to sins, that you were by object, by nature an object of God's wrath because of your corruption, that you realize that it was God's power to even give you faith to unite you to Christ and that it is the power of Christ still in you to continue to lay hold of him and also so that this corruption in you is constantly being transformed so that you Less and less love your sin, and more and more love Christ, so that when you 're being tempted you don 't feel like you 're all on your own that you have no um, that you have no resources <clears throat> one of the consequences of um, One of the consequences today of different aspects, if you think about the way that Christians confess the scriptures, because everybody reads the scriptures, everybody out there says, well, I'm just reading what the Bible says. Everybody um, reads them and comes to certain conclusions. Um, In fact, you know, every heretic that has ever existed in church history was quoting scripture to make the arguments that they made. So we all have the same scriptures. The question is, even as what Peter says, is whether the people reading them are stable and learned. And if they're unstable and unlearned, then they can actually twist the scriptures to destruction. Well, one of the problems in the way that certain um, things interpret that is that if you think that you have ultimately like um, God has a vote, you have a vote, and that somehow that, that you know he's given a le- level playing field and you're laying hold of certain things, it ends up really kind of um, diminishing in one sense what work Christ had to do in order to purchase your salvation, to even purchase your faith. If, for instance, all it is is Christ kind of coming out here, setting an example, laying it out there and saying, okay, I've given you kind of the playbook now. Pick it up, read the playbook. Now it's up to you to kind of figure it out. I'll give you some help if you kind of need it, but here's the playbook, here's what you need to do, and now you're able to kind of um, follow through with those sorts of things. And so let's go through this and we'll, we'll, st- we'll see how that unpacks. So in the first part in verses five to eight, we see, sorry, I got multiple glasses here. In verses five to eight, it says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, at um, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you were mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, one of the things, if you're ever wondering whether or not. You can just quote scripture without knowing exactly where it says it. Yes, you can, because the authors of scripture do that. It's like, it's been said somewhere, you know. I love that about the author of Hebrews. It's like, I know it's there. You can find it. I mean, like, it's not like I'm ignorant of the scriptures, but I, I don't need, they didn't even have, like, they couldn't have said Psalm chapter Psalm 8, verse 4, because that's not how, it, we didn't add um, uh, chapter numbers and verse numbers until, you know, several centuries ago so but the point is here is that what we have is a testimony of the fact that man was created actually in a very exalted position to have dominion over the earth to have dominion over God's creation um Adam Adam was given that and Eve was his helpmate so together man and women had a vocation together um working together to subdue the earth, to um, be fruitful and mul- multiply, and so um, it's, they they were made for a while a little lower than the angels, and it's actually speaking to this, but then there's a shipwreck of that in the fall as well, but the, the whole point is that there's a sense in which that was supposed to be the case, that we would have this dominion, at least for a little while, under the, um, in, in terms of the um, subjection to mankind. But then, then, then it kind of shifts a little bit here because what Christ has done is he's kind of restored this vocation that mankind in general was supposed to have in Adam so that when we fell, we were all in Adam. So there's this federal... Uh, representation that Adam represents for all of mankind to where all who are in Adam are fallen, and that's why we're born corrupt, that's why we're born sinful, we're born sinners, we're born under the wrath and curse of God, and that's why sin and misery occur, that's why, um, you know, we have all sorts of diseases, all sorts of things that are going on, that's why um, we're sinners and we're sinned against, and um, and, and that's why creation is actually rebelling against us because we've, uh, we haven't, uh, we've lost that, that sort of ability to, to have things as they were. And so then Christ comes and it says, um, continues in verse 8 and 9, it says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for, for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and, uh, and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, this is one of those interesting things where it talks about um, the fact that Christ came to fulfill the vocation of man in terms of the the righteousness and the obedience that man required to God, because God gave man a vocation of obedience to God, that he would do everything um, that God commanded and not not sin, and Christ came to do that, but the way in which Christ came to be um, to lead was not ultimately in this grand scheme as man saw to um, kind of come as some sort of conquering king, but to suffer. And there's a, there's a glory that's attendant to that, that God, that God gives glory to Christ for the suffering that he has to endure. And the reason for that is because when... And this is one of the things that's sometimes hard for people to understand, because if you look at everything in terms of political power... And you don't really see that the most important thing is is, on a hor- is not this horizontal plane in terms of who is in charge of whom, but that in a spiritual sense, where does the power lie? Because in if you, if you think of mankind as being in two different categories, you have those who are in Adam or those who are subject to sin and death, and it's not one of those things where people vote to be subject to sin and death, and they're not mostly dead and mostly subject to it, but they're considered slaves to sin and death. And we see them walking, we see them moving around. It's not a sense in which they're, they're dead in the sense of physically dead, but they're spiritually um, not able to please God. They spiritually have hostility to God, and they are under subjection to principalities and powers. And what Christ had to come to is a world that was subject to principalities and powers, and the way that he had to break that power was through suffering. So the suffering in the world looks very weak, but it's very powerful in a spiritual sense because it was the means by which he broke the spiritual power of sin and death because as he endured the suffering that was was um, due to those who were un- under this dominion. He broke the power for those to 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 continue to be enslaved by this principle, so that he could draw them out and say, these, "These no longer belong to this. They all belong to me." So he brings them from brings us from there to himself, so that through that power he is able to taste death, taste suffering, and God glorifies him in that. You see what I'm saying? This, this glory of Christ where he becomes the second Adam, the, the new humanity, so that those of us in him, it looks very weak to the world, but it's the power of God for salvation to bring people who are dead to the things of the world. They're in the flesh. They're dead. They hate God to a new life to now where they're no longer under judgment, but now they're children of God, and they love God, and they're serving him. But we don't, see, we don't see things as if they're in subjection to Christ because what we have is for a little while that this world in which it's still operating, that the world is still under a curse. Everything hasn't been put away yet, right? The last enemy is death. People are still... Um, marrying and giving in marriage. They're having children. We still think, see things going on. We're working with people. We don't hate them. They're our neighbors. We love them. And we have, we have this, this humanity still occurring to where uh, people are still dying. People are still having terrible things happen. And, um, and, and for a little while, what we have is we have a taste of what the new heavens and the new earth will be in terms of being in Christ, but not everything's not in subjection yet the last enemy will be death the last enemy will be all the rebellion and there will be a judgment and so we see and we still struggle through this life right you see how we're still walking through this life where we we have this dual reality where we're still walking around in a world that's still under the subject of this curse but we're no longer under the power of the curse to enslave us to hating god we're now in christ are you guys following me so far Hopefully I'm not being too um, obscure here. I can't unpack it forever because we've got to end at like 1 p.m. I think with the sermon, something like that. So then we continue it um, from verses 10 to 13. It says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make, that, um, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Okay, so you're probably wondering why I wrote down... The title of this chapter, or title of this sermon is Captain, My Captain. And the reason is, is because there's a word in this verse here, one of these verses that I just read, and I wonder if you can figure out which word it is in verse 10, that in other translations is called Captain. Does anybody have a guess? Anybody remember what that verse says in there? What word is there in verse 10 that you think might be in another translation the word captain? Founder, yes. It's the word archagon in Greek. And it can be translated different ways. Author, captain, um, founder. Now, when you think of a founder, sometimes you think like somebody who starts something and says, "Okay, uh, the founder of this group," and then he tell a story about that, and they're like, "That's a really cool story." Um, he's the founder of Salvation, and then we all read about that, and then we think that that's. That's interesting. It's like historical, and I can go ahead and read about salvation in the past. And that's why I don't think that's a very useful translation of it. It really probably depends on, you know, and this is the point of, of teaching and preaching, is to give people an understanding of what the scriptures are trying to communicate because um, language is translating across, you know, culture and time and and um, and, you know, even uh, definitions and syntax and all that other stuff and so when we think of this we've got to think of the fact that what Christ is doing here is not merely laying out a principle for those of you to kind of take up and say oh I understand the blueprint now let me go let me go follow simply in its its in footsteps he's not even doing something that you could imitate in your own strength and say oh, I saw what he did, and because I'm a man just like he was, I can do everything that he did, and there's nothing special about what he did. What Christ did in our salvation was something that only he could do. And the reason for that is because he was, he was God who became man and was no was no long, was was still subject in terms of the, to the curse in terms of living in a fallen world and having a body that was was subject to infirmities and that sort of thing. But he himself was not born with a corrupt nature, and by corruption I mean uh, there's this idea of being born sinful in Adam, so that you're under the wrath and curse of God, meaning that not only are you under its curse, but you also have within you a nature that is sinful in and of itself. And Christ, when He, uh, the Son of God, who was one person, was united to humanity, he became man, but not with a nature that was corrupt. And I know this is crazy. You guys can talk to me later if you want to hear about it. It's not crazy. It's actually true. But it's really hard to get your head around. It's something that the church, it's like we can say certain things about what, who, who the Son of God is and say that he's one person with two natures, but they don't, they don't mix, they're not confused. It's not like Christ became like half God and half man. He was still fully God, but fully man, so that he had a rational soul. He was actually a baby. I mean, he had diapers and everything, and, and, but he, he, it was one person still, so that he thought as a man, but he also was still fully God, but one person. Well, now, so, when you think about this idea of captain, I was trying to explain this to another church recently, and I realized later on um, uh, there was a guy who was in the Navy in there. When you think about captain, don't think about a Navy captain because they're not really all that impressive in terms of, like, somebody you would worry about getting behind and saying, wow, that Navy captain's going to plow through that really dangerous thing, you know? And if you were in the Navy, then... We can talk about that later on whether or not you agree that's true. It's more like a, it's more like a marine or a, an army captain in terms of the way in which that person is is out in front. But even more profound than a marine captain, because the kinds of things that a good leader would do. No, notionally, somebody else in the unit could do, but the way, what Christ is doing is is going through sin and death in a way that nobody else can do. He's plowing through, and he's he's doing things that are impossible. It's almost uh, you know there's a there's a good uh, series called Band of Brothers uh, about um, this one army unit that follows them through their Uh, basic training all the way through, um, even through the Battle of the Bulge. And they were at the Eagle's Nest, Hitler's Eagle's Nest. It's an amazing uh, account and um, just brings you to tears sometimes. And, um, you know, by the way, full warning here, I'm a Marine, but I still get really emotional sometimes. So um, just warning you about that, especially when I'm thinking about what people do for one another. But um, there's this one scene in there where this one unit is really like just distraught because their company commander is horrible. Uh, Anybody who knows anything about leadership knows that the first thing that a good leader does is he's there with his men all the time. He's doing everything with them. He's out in front and this guy was just gone all the time and his first sergeant's just beside himself because he's trying to he's trying to defend his company commander because you don't talk trash about your commander in front of other people, but the guy's never around. And finally, um, finally, the, the command above gets wise to this, and so they relieve that company commander, and they, they bring in this new guy who is still a first lieutenant because people died very fast then, And so he's, he's, but he's an unknown quantity. But he comes in, and you could kind of tell that he was immediately the kind of guy that was serious about his job, and there's this one scene where they're pinned down by this um, German or Panzer unit, and it's in this town, and they're they're cut off, and they need communications. They need to somehow communicate to um, to their superiors what's going on. And so this, sorry, because it's really representative of the kind of stuff that Christ does, and it's just, you see these, everybody looking as this company commander suddenly just gets up, and he runs across an open field with machine gun nests, tanks, and everything else, and runs through the tank line to, over a while, to, to restore communications and to let people know what's going on. In fact, the Germans are so stunned, they're like thinking, there's no way this is happening. And not only that, but he runs back, and then and then immediately everybody in the unit's like, "Man, that's that's my commander right there." But see, you could think about, you could actually conceive of somebody else doing something like that, right? It could have been a, it could have been somebody else in that. It didn't have to be the captain. But the point is, is that what Christ did in salvation is that he did something that was impossible for us to do because we were slaves to sin and death, and so that he, as a perfect man with corruption, with no corruption, had to go through the full fury of sin and death coming right at him to bear the full brunt of that on our behalf. And not only that, but to break the power of, for it to enslave us. You see what I'm saying? We could not break through those lines. Even if, even if we had decided to be the brave one. And step out instead of cowering behind the line. And seeing sin and death on the other side. To be able to get there. But Christ broke through. So that when we're on a path to salvation. It's a path that he has laid through his own suffering. And it's not something where we're saying, well, isn't that nice that the captain of our salvation did that in the past, but he's out in front of us right now. He's still alive. He's ascended on high. And he is out there as the one sanctifying us. And we are the ones being sanctified. And he is laid forward and he's still out in front of us. And even though we have armor to be able to receive that, he's the one strengthening us and he's the one by the same spirit that was within him is giving us the power to be able to withstand that because we are no longer slaves to sin. You see how powerful that is? so amazing to think what Christ has done for us to lay forward this path that would have been impossible so that when we're walking through, we're not walking through a landmine that we have to worry, could this kill me? Can I do this? We know that Christ is with us and no matter what comes at us, that he can actually help us through, he can actually have the power to bring us through this. And not only that, but he is not ashamed in the assembly to call us brothers. Now, I was the middle child in my family, and i don't know if you ever heard the joke about middle children i mean the the fact that there's you hear it's middle children's day it's like nobody you know yeah, nobody knew or that sort of thing but um the the thing is is that uh there were times in my life where I think my brothers were ashamed to call me their brother, and I know that because I was kind of a not a very good brother. That were there were times when I might not have um, always wanted to admit who my siblings were. And there are times, even in the church, because of our flesh, if we had to say about somebody else in the church, "Oh, is that is that person in your church?" You like, yeah. Yeah, that guy's in my church. He's one of my elders. If, you know, probably thinking about that about me. You know, but um, Christ is not ashamed to call any of you his cho- his brothers and sisters. He's purchased that right. He's delighted to call you his brothers and sisters. Now, when you think about the sins that you commit, when you think about the corruption that is within your heart, do you? Doesn't it just magnify the love that Christ has for those whom He has redeemed, for those whom He has gone through this amazing, um, this amazing? Uh, battle with sin and death to free you from sin and death knows that you are united to him is still corrupt and he's bringing through you and you are in this formation moving forward with him he is not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters if you fall out of this formation he's not going to say well he can't keep up just leave him behind she can't keep up just leave her behind i I can't stand what he just did. Leave him behind. He's saying, no, this is one for whom I went through sin and death for. And I'm going to see this person, all of you together, as we move forward and press forward together and encourage one another to the very end, because this is the bride that I have chosen I, have, I hate divorce. This is my bride, and I will not divorce her. I will see to it that she is sanctified to the end so that when she is presented, it will be glorious. She is my bride. I went through sin and death for her, and I will see to the very end, I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of any of you. And by extension, because Christ is not ashamed of, Of you, I am not ashamed of you either. And I hope you're not ashamed of me. And would the Lord give us that attitude, even as we are bothered and annoyed by one another, to have the eyes and the mind of Christ towards one another to see that? All right, let's see, where, where are we? <laughs> all right, since, since the children of God, all right, let's, let's get to the part. Verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery for surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of abraham now again i just want you to understand something the scriptures do not classify any of those outside of christ as people who just need more information i am not out here trying to convince you that the the word of god is like eminently reasonable It is foolishness to the world. The issue is that mankind is in slavery to sin and death. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God came to a world already condemned. We were already condemned. We had set that, we've already set that in motion. We are culpable in that, in Adam. And we are rightfully condemned. There are things that happen in life that are terrible. There are things that, that, um, that are unfair. There are things that are horrible out there. But none of us can actually claim at the end of the day that we get worse than we deserve. Given the fact that we are all by nature children of wrath in terms of our sin. Christ came to break the power of slavery to sin, he even this is one of the biggest friction points with the scribes and the Pharisees. Scribes and the Pharisees uh, represented really kind of the mainstream of how uh, people understood salvation at the time, which was not what the Old Testament scriptures con- uh, testified concerning scripture. But it was more like the idea that you are um, you are righteous by your um, how, how well you put into practice the things that you should do. And the idea that, that they were enslaved to sin was exactly the opposite of what they thought. They said they were children of Abraham, and Christ said, you are slaves to sin. You are children of the devil. And they wanted to stone him for that. Because the last thing that even people who are, who are sometimes trying to follow God If they don't reckon themselves that apart from Christ they'd be dead in their sins and trespasses and it took the power of Christ to save them from slavery to Satan himself, then they're never really going to apprehend what it is to be united to Christ. No longer a slave, but set free from that power so that they have a new nature in him. And it was not their doing, it was the power of God and salvation. Finally, to conclude, it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the, son, for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now. I told you I was going to get to that part, that because he himself has suffered when being tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, I hope that you get this idea that um, Christ is pretty, totally awesome, okay? Because he is God who has become man. In fact, the whole Hebrews thing is like, you like Moses? Jesus is better. You like Abraham? Jesus is better. You think angels are awesome? Check out Jesus, you think the ironic priesthood is awesome with all of its things? Jesus! Woo! Everything about Hebrews is like you think that everything in the Old Testament, all of that is just types and shadows and just like it's like it's like as C. S. Lewis said, playing with mud pies and, and instead of being like in this feast. It's not that it was bad and it's fun to play on the beach with, you know, mud and stuff like that, or sand. But there are things that are better than that. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. And the thing about temptation for Jesus is that we sometimes doubt that Christ could really Um, understand what we're going through. We, We have all these things that are happening to us, all these temptations, all this suffering, and then we imagine that Jesus was just God, and he was like, it's almost like we think that if between here and here was sin and death and all this other stuff, that he was God, and so he flew over it right? He just started here as a baby and then never had to experience anything. It's just like he just like went over it, and everybody's suffering and going through all this terrible stuff. But Jesus was in the midst of all of that stuff, and he experienced he experienced the power of sin and temptation at an intensity that you could not even fathom. And the reason is is because we quit so easily, right? It's like, man, that marathon was hard. Well, what was it like? Oh, I don't, man! I was like half a mile into, it and I had to stop because my legs were hurting so bad. It's like, well, imagine what it would feel as you've actually completed the entire thing before it got too hard, and you stopped. You see what I'm saying? And that's the way. That's the way. We don't even start on the first step for this this um, intense battle. Uh, before, well, outside of Christ, we can't even take a step, and even in Christ. When we're dealing with sin and temptation, we often, even with the power of Christ and the encouragement, we give into it, so we've never really even tasted what it's like to experience the the full fury of that. And on top of that, if we did, you know what Jesus said to Peter about that? He said, you know what, Peter? Satan would sift you like wheat. All your confidence about standing when everybody else leaves you Jesus... I will never abandon you. And Jesus is like, Peter, Satan would sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. So we never, ever have experienced the full power of sin and temptation, because if we did, we would be sifted like wheat. Christ preserves us from all of that. And he has gone through all of that and gone on the other side so that he's, and he's not just beckoning to you to say, hey, come here, I'm over here. He's actually with us and he's on high praying for us, interceding for us walking with us by the spirit he knows what it's like to be tempted you have a person who had has flesh and blood who has gone through those still has scars in his hands scars on his side scars on his feet knows what it's like to suffer knows what it's like to have people hate him knows what it's like to go through the disappointment of people rebelling against him knows what it's like to to have those whom he loves die everything that you can imagine you say could jesus understand what it's like to, under, to, to go through this, yes, he completely understands. And he's a merciful high priest, one who is interceding for you to get you through this time of temptation. And so you can have full confidence in the gospel that Christ has not only saved you from the power and guilt of sin, but is still on high as your captain your prophet, priest, and king, making sure that you will be glorified to the very end. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the power of salvation in Christ. And we ask that you would help us to be mindful of this as we, not, as we often grow discouraged and doubtful that we can get through these things that are going on um, through, uh, in the world, and the ways that things are happening in our lives we sometimes abbreviate the gospel to forget what Christ has accomplished, and so that we ask that you would help us to worship him, not merely as one who has died to take away the guilt of our sin, but ever lives and intercedes for us, and give us confidence now as we go into the world. In Jesus' name, amen.